Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, Nord VPN, of course. You see, it's Nord Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. just noticing that the table which we're both leaning on is beginning to look a lot like christmas it is, and that kind it? Of, is it, i always say detritus but some people pronounce it differently no detritus how is, would you it's not detritus well i've heard some people say that well, anyway because we've got like because we've just done a big thing for our friends at picture house so we've got crackers and coins and jokes yeah no hats i don't think were there any hats Yes, there is a hat. There's there. Oh, okay. Do you want to wear that? No. Okay. Me neither. <laughs> no, because uh, for a start, it appears to be a hat for somebody with a very small head. It's a baby. It's a baby. It's hat. a baby hat. It Do you want to give that to I'll grandchild to one? Grandchild one. Very good. Okay, I'll take that. I don't think he'll be that chuffed. Granddad, he might you're eat it. Lovely. No, we don't talk about that. You are. I bring greetings, so by old. the way. Don't tell him, Pike. For you, <laughs> from uh, Toby Jones oh. and from Emma Thompson, who is uh, on the program today. Yes. But they both asked after you. No. So. I mean, Toby, that's fine. But Emma Thompson asked after me. Yes. What did she say? Well, you know, how's Mark? Oh, great. You okay. Know, that kind of thing. But I bumped into Toby. So this is sort of a Toby Jones show because we haven't had a Toby Jones we show. Haven't. Most of our shows have been Noby, Noby Jones. Jones. Um, he was getting a suit and I was buying a scarf. And so we just had a nice little chat about the wonder and... The film was, he, was he getting a, a fitted suit? He, well, I'm not quite sure. He was looking. He was just trying on suits. Anyway, but he was looking fabulous. Okay. Where, where was this? Was it in an upmarket store, or was it my favourite store, Marks and Spencer's washable range? No, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't that. It was kind of. It was a nice. It was a nice enough shop in London's CD Soho. Was it? In, was it on Berwick Street? It was in Berwick Street. Great. Okay, that's the place to get fitted up for a suit. He wasn't Although, being fitted. It was just. It was an off the peg number. But okay, anyway, fine. Toby was fabulous. Toby, if you're listening, um, thanks very much indeed for for being super. Cheap. I had a you know I had a suit made for me in Berwick Street, and I put it on and it was made from, you know, and I put it on and the good lady professor her indoors. She said, "You look like a million dollars." I said, "That's because that's what it costs." That's how much it costs. Very good. Uh, so on the show today, Mark, yes. what are you going to be reviewing? I'm speaking slowly so that you can catch up and get to the right page. I'm uh, going to be reviewing uh, Bones and All, She Said, Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and Matilda the Musical, which brings us to our special guest. Who is the aforementioned Dame Emma Thompson, who plays Agatha Trunchbull, uh, Miss Trunchbull in that there film. And as if that wasn't enough. On Monday for The Vanguard, we'll be going deeper into the world of film and film-adjacent television, which I see we're still using as a phrase, with another extra take in which you'll get a bonus review of... Nanny, which is a really creepy chiller. 
Ah, okay. I'm not quite sure I like the sound of that. And is it got Jacob Rees-Mogg in there? Or <laughs> no, that would be a really creepy chiller. Hello, children. <laughs> Guess who we've hired? All free today. We'll also be expanding your viewing in our feature One Frame Back, inspired by Matilda the Musical, discussing Roald Dahl adaptations, of which there have been many. many. And in Take It or Leave It, you decide our Word of a Mouth podcast feature. I'm very excited to say Mark will be talking about... Well, and you kind of nudged me towards this. Andor, the Star Wars prequel to the in betweenquel Yes, which might make you think, <laughs> oh, I really can't be bothered. It is, where did that lamp come from? Yeah, yeah. But, but it's actually kind of standalone and, in my opinion, brilliant. Yeah. We'll discuss more with Andor on our uh, take two. Um, uh, please send your suggestions for elite streaming stuff because we just cannot keep up with everything. But if you've watched a, a series or a one-off film somewhere and we haven't discussed it, correspondence at curbinameo.com. Please do sign up to our premium value extra takes through Apple Podcasts. Or if one prefers a different platform, one should head to extratakes.com. Uh, and we've got lots of super extra bonus material coming up over Christmas and New Year, we by have. the way. So n there's never been a better time to sign up. To, to enlist. Anyway, if you're already a Vanguardista, as always, we, we salute, salute you. you. And can we just say for next week's uh, Take It or Leave It, you decide. We've already decided. Yes. Off the back of a conversation that we were having on the way in, next week I'm going to be looking at the Netflix documentary, and what's it called? FIFA Uncovered. FIFA Uncovered. There has never been a better time to watch that documentary, and then we can all say the stench that you can smell in your nostrils comes from FIFA. Auntie Helen yes. has sent us an email. Uh, Dear doctors, heritage listener, second-time emailer. Last week, my twin nephews, Matt and Pete, who live in Sydney, Australia, with my brother Anthony, they turned 15, they are huge movie buffs and are, in their words, your biggest fans. They have a varied and wide-ranging catalogue of films under their belts at such a tender age. I've included one of their top 100 lists. I'm reliably informed that this is an old list, as their favourites can change almost daily. Yes. But it will give you an idea. In fact, and in this list, uh, which has got Amadeus at 100, Citizen Kane at 99, Portrait of a Lady on Fire at 98. Wow. Fantastic Mr Fox is at 81. And Black Swan is at 79, but they've changed their minds and they've swapped those round. That's how meticulous <laughs> That's, this is. This is a Nick Hornby uh, book in it, the writing, isn't it? Exactly. For their 15th birthday treat, they watched Seven Samurai on DVD that yeah. my brother had to import from America and also The Exorcist. They then spent the rest of the night watching the 10,000 clips of the good Mark Dr. Kermode uh, talking about it on the interweb. Sorry. I know that you're... <laughs> sorry... What, what Auntie Helen has written, I know that a, a was up from your bad selves, which makes it sound uh, toiletry. So anyway, I know that a was up from your bad selves would make their year. I don't think a was up is going to make anyone's year. Anyway, uh, a, a was, was up, up does sound like a, another word for a peeing contest, doesn't it? Does. it? Uh, so Matt and Pete, what's up? From the bad selves, uh, would make their year and wouldn't hurt my cool auntie points either. I haven't seen them uh, for three years, what with one thing and another, and our love of movies and your show helps us feel that we're not so far apart after all. Uh, keep up the good work, tinkity tonk, and down with things that keep families from watching movies together. From Auntie Helen, it's a really, it's a really good list. Baby Driver, sixty three. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, sixty eight. In Bruges, seventy. So it's a really, it's the kind of list that you have time for when you're fifteen. Okay. 
But what's the, this? Only we, uh, we can only see up to number fifty. I don't know what the what the top fifty are. That's the, that's the second lot. That's fifty one to a hundred. Yeah. What's number What's number one I to have, fifty? I don't know. Auntie Helen hasn't, uh, and unless it's been just cut off by the postal service. Superbad is one place above Parasite. What can you? What <laughs> How can you old say? are they? Fifteen. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very good. Anyway, so thank you, Auntie Helen. Um, correspondence at kerbinandmayor.com. Uh, and thank you for passing uh, all that on. And hope you get uh, out to Australia or they get to come and see Auntie Helen uh, next. Anyway, I want to leave plenty of time uh, for our first review because I, I get the feeling that you are approaching it in the same spirit that Emma Thompson approached being Miss Trunchbull, which is to say, with plenty of relish. Yes. So uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which I think is the official full title, which is a Netflix production. It's in cinemas now, and then it's going to be on Netflix from December the 9th. And you'll remember a, a month or so ago, I said I had met up with Guillermo, who I've, you know, I, I have known since the days of, um, of Kronos, but we don't, you know, we sort of see each other like once, once every couple of years. Yeah, so we had, we had breakfast. And he said that he was just finishing um, the stop-motion Pinocchio. He'd been over doing the, I think, maybe the music or the grading or something. And I said, what's it about? And he said, it's about death. Turns out it is about death and fascism, which oh. doesn't perhaps immediately sound like that's, of course, the doesn't way... It doesn't sound like Christmas with the family, does <laughs> it, it really? Doesn't. Unless you have a very unpleasant family. And yet somehow... It brilliantly is. He also says that it is the third part of a trilogy of films, the first two parts of which are The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, which are his Spanish language films, which are centrally concerned with the years around the Spanish Civil War and that kind of break between fantasy and reality. So this is a stop motion adaptation of Pinocchio, which owes um, a certain debt to Chris Grimley's illustrations the kind of the sort of the the, the very sort of stick-like figure of um of Pinocchio it's set in the 20th century in the between the wars period and it's a complete reinvention um we don't have a clip but we have the trailer so I'll play you this just to kind of get you in the okay. mood so if you right. Simon you can see what the what the you know what the animation looks like let's have a look I want to tell you a story it's a story you may think you know but <laughs> You don't. Over there! What is that? Papa! <gasps> it speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand! Well, apart from that, it's a strange ending, even for a yeah, trailer. I know. Um, I that think, looks fantastic. I think there, yeah, I think there was more of it. But so anyway, so stop motion. As you can see, it's got that that very. It's a very particular look. It's kind of hard to describe, other than to say that it's got, it's got heft. It's got thumbprints. It's got tactility. And this is one of the things that stop motion brings. It's got rough edges. The the the, the puppet of Pinocchio is not smoothly carved or anything. It looks raggedy and rough hewn. Rough hewn is exactly the phrase I was looking for. So it begins with um, uh, our Geppetto loses his beloved son, Carlo, during the First World War, during the Great War, um, because a bomb is dropped that isn't even actually meant to be dropped. It's just dropped because it's unloaded. He loses his son. He becomes so grief-stricken that in one drunken night, he cuts down the tree by his son's grave and 
carves it into this ramshackle puppet saying, you know, I will make another version of my son. So there's, there's nothing... There's nothing gentle about how this comes around. It literally comes out of grief and being overwhelmed by despair. The puppet is then given magical life by a spirit which bears a relationship to fairy with turquoise hair or blue fairy that we think of. Whatever. Anyway, so it comes to I'm life. Sorry, I don't know. Well, you, so, so you know in... Well, in the original story, the log that Pinocchio is carved from is kind of magically alive from the beginning because the, the log actually kicks Geppetto early on. And then there are other versions of how... There, there are many versions of how Pinocchio comes to life. Crucially, Pinocchio comes to life and Geppetto is initially terrified of this whirling dervish that's running around the house and smashing things and breaking things. And, you know, it's literally like a force of nature. However, they then settle down into a kind of relationship which is almost manageable. Geppetto has to go to the church where the huge big crucifix has been damaged in the previous story that we saw before. And he takes Pinocchio with him. And at the church, the congregation say, demon child, demon, magical puppet. And Pinocchio looks up at this crucified Christ, which looks like an outtake from the devils, incidentally, and says, how come everyone loves him? He's wooden. Why do they love him and not me? So in the very setup of it, we have all these things that are absolutely, um, you know, central to Guillermo del Toro's kind of core personal, you know, lapsed Catholic monsters, not monstrous sort of ideas. And then what happens is the story then follows um, the misadventures of Pinocchio. I mean, it has it, it walks sort of in parallel with the original story as all adaptation. I mean, the first adaptation of Pinocchio is 1911. Then, of course, everyone remembers the Disney adaptation from 1940. Then most recently, we had that absolutely ghastly Robert Zemeckis version, which was, you know, live action, but just absolutely horrible and hollow. And then the Matteo Garoni version quite recently. And this is a story that keeps getting retold. But so it walks alongside that story as all adaptations do. And it raises a bunch of philosophical questions, one of which is, how come they love him, this tortured, crucified, wooden Christ, and not me? One of the other questions it raises is, how can Mussolini's fascists use an unkillable wooden soldier as a weapon? So it has the politics and the personal stuff that has been deeply embedded in all of Guillermo's work. And I can see absolutely why it is that he associates it with Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth because they are so specifically tied up with those concerns. Um, yes, there is a conscience in the form of a talking cricket, but it's not the kind of Jiminy Cricket figure that you might remember from the from Pinocchio. I mean, obviously, I mean, because in the original Pinocchio, the original Pinocchio story, the cricket gets killed. Pinocchio kills the cricket. In oh, the really? Very <laughs> early on, he that. throws a mallet at him and he accidentally kills the cricket. And then it's the ghost of the cricket. There's a, if The original Pinocchio story is very, very dark and very, very strange. What I really loved about this, apart from the way it looked, apart from the fact that it's got a lovely score and some songs. There's one song called Chapapa, which for which Guillermo del Toro co-wrote the lyrics. And I, I think they're putting it forward for Oscar consideration. And it's really, you know, it's one of those things that just absolutely gets you in the feels, you know, gets you in the heartstrings. The thing I really like about it is of all the adaptations of Pinocchio that have gone before, the thing this is closest to is AI. It is actually thematically quite similar to Spielberg's AI. I love AI. I didn't love it when I first saw it. I completely misjudged it. And then I did a total 360 degrees. On, no, actually 180 degrees because 360 gets you back where you <laughs> started in the first started, place. Yes. Um, 
I did a complete 180 on it, and I now think it's Spielberg's masterpiece. Like that film, this is this has concerns that are to do with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, and you know, creators and creations and monsters and monstrousness and what is actually monstrous. And also it has a very interesting similarity in terms of the way it deals with the wish to become a real boy. Because if you remember AI, AI has a brilliant way of solving that problem, which is it's really to do with narrative poetry. And I think there's a lot of that in this. I thought it was moving. I thought it was daring. I think... I think it has a really progressive attitude to the subject of life and death. And when Guillermo said it's about death, which is a subject with which I'm rather preoccupied at the moment, I thought this was a really genuinely thoughtful and positive way of reminding us of that thing, that the thing that gives life purpose is that it's that it's fleeting. And only if that's the case, can you really understand what it means to be alive? It is the very transient nature of life that makes it powerful. And it deals with this in a way that, I mean, obviously this isn't a kid's cartoon, but I think it is a PG certificate. I think it's for grown-up kids of all ages. Bits of it are really uh, scary. Bits of it are really funny. Bits of it are really moving. And once again, it just reminds us that there is nobody in the world doing monster stories. Like, I mean, we were talking recently about Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which has all these brilliant episodes that are directed by Jennifer Ken and directed by Anna Lily Amipour. He he really does embrace monsters and love monsters and makes fairy tales that are about that. And I think, finally... His blending of the personal and the political is second to none. I thought this was just fabulous. Anyway, it's in cinemas and then it's going to be on Netflix, but I would say see it in the cinema because, wow. Still to come. Oh, still to come. Page eight. Thank you. I'll be reviewing She Said, which is a new movie which will have some interesting stuff to say about the box office instantly in America and Matilda the Musical. Uh, and you can hear my chat with Emma Thompson, who plays the formidable Miss Trunchbull in that there film. Time for the ads, unless you're in the vanguard, in which case we'll be back before you can say Andre Villas Boas. This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Mubi. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a Mubi account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly, Simon. This month, Mubi are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival, which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical, with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful, and Tokyo Gar, which is the film by uh, German director Wim Wenders, who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Voila Vada, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit Mayo. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Kermit Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days. And everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kermode. Okay, so uh, so we're back. Box office top 10 uh, coming up. Let's talk about Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery first of all. Yes. Uh, it's not in the chart because, because, as we explained last week, it's cinemas for one week. And also Netflix, I know they've recently talked about changing this, but Netflix didn't ever release box office figures. Yeah. So, but it's interesting that it's it's just not in the 10, but it may well be that, as we talked about last week, everybody is waiting to watch it at Christmas when you can gather the family around the telly uh, and you can, uh, you know, and you can watch it, which is, and that's when you'll be able to hear the interview that we've done for this program with Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson. Yes. Um Simon Mark says, Des Eddie McGrath. Thanks, Des Eddie. Simon Mark, in Mark's review for The Menu, he claimed that the film was a mere appetizer for Glass Onion. This is an instance where the pre-meal is more substantive than the main course. When the tension in The Menu ratchets up, you lean in. When the tension in Glass Onion ratchets up, you drop out. For all of Johnson's excess plotting, the progress of the main story runs along familiar lines. While who does what to who and why is baffling to begin with, like a magician moving on to further illusions in order to obfuscate the obviousness of their first trick, I just don't think that the elements that lead up to the ending are subtly or effectively dealt to us. Ultimately, this is a film geared towards the performances and the acting is the most undermined element of the film. It is oppressively sleek and charmless. It seems designed to be watched at home on TV, very Netflix, with too many Ooh. artless close-ups. Ooh. While Yedlin's overly saturated grading makes everyone look plastic with sickly skin tones, hardly the suave 
evil under the sun vibes that the production team were aiming for. Let's hope the next Knives Out film has a surer script and isn't compromised in the same way that COVID clearly affected the production of Glass Onion. Then again, you look at what the menu achieved with a much smaller budget and there is clearly no substitute for creativity. Okay. A, a withering review, yeah. I think you Okay, well, that's fine. I mean, you know... It's a diversity of views is a is an interesting and positive thing. I don't feel that way. I don't think the menu is as clever or as creative as the emailer does. But then you know, hey, the menu has int- interestingly performed far better at the box office than it was expected to do. And we'll return to this when we address the subject of she said which has had a fairly catastrophic opening in America, although I think there is there is an industrial reason for that, which we'll get to. Yeah, uh, The Yedlin uh, referred to in Des Eddie McGrath's email is Steve Yedlin, the cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, so box office top 10 at 24 here and nowhere in America. Well, it's not charted anyway. One Piece Film Red. Now, we have an email on One Piece Film Red because obviously I hadn't seen it when it came out, but we said, if you've seen it, let us know. And Andy Harako, possibly Harako, says the film is a jarring mix of story and music videos which sit at odds with each other, clumsily implemented, and the songs were incredibly cringeworthy. The plot is incredibly convoluted, even for One Piece's standards, and poorly paced, resulting in a big baddie final battle which feels wholly unearned and very hollow, and despite the fantastic animation on display, failed to deliver on any level apart from pure spectacle. Wow. Ultimately, this film left me disappointed as both a fan of the series and of the medium. I'm happy that it's made such a hit in the box office, but it's very unfriendly to those who are not familiar with One Piece, like my poor suffering wife, because they do nothing to introduce the characters, and the side characters that are introduced are both obscure and have no explanation. For those who are fans, it left a sour taste in their mouths as they just cheaply flogged beloved characters for no rhyme or reason, and with no relevance to the plot or depth to their already existing law in the show. Another withering review <laughs> this time from Andy. That doesn't make you want to go and it. doesn't, it. no. So I think probably I'll give that a miss. Number 10 here, number 13 in the States, Triangle of Sadness. Well, it's interesting. That is starting to show up in people's top 10 best films of the year list, which I'm surprised by. I mean, I know it won the Palm Door. I, I, I think it's a flawed film, and I actually think it's Austin's least interesting film, although Harris Dickinson is terrific in it. But it, the message is, very much as the message of the menu, um, these rich people are quite annoying. Who'd have thought it? I know. Uh, yes, and for Triangle of Sadness, also arms dealers. I mean, who would have <laughs> I know. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> Not very nice. Number nine here uh, is Drisham 2. Which is the sequel to... Uh, Drisham? Yes, you're getting really good at I'm this. I'm on this. Um, it's also, it's a remake. This is the Hindi uh, remake of the Laram crime thriller from last year, which they announced immediately was going to be remade. So far, this is the ninth highest grossing Hindi film of 2022. Wasn't press screened uh, last week, but I will try and catch up with it. Number eight is Listy Do M5. And this, again, wasn't press screened. This is a Polish uh, language release. It is the fifth and apparently final instalment in the uh, Christmas-themed series, of which I haven't seen any. Do we Do we have any? No, okay, no, we so don't. if you've seen any of these, 
please let us know because this yes. is a subject about which I know nothing at well, all. So you can, you can be part of our sort of our festive season. Yes. Because um, I would like to talk about this. And I almost certainly, therefore, if this is a Polish movie, I've probably got that pronunciation completely wrong. Yeah. So um, please tell us more about these movies and then we can include that in our future programmes. Uh, After Sun is uh, number seven and number 20 in the US. One of the best films of the year by some distance. You did a terrific uh, interview with the star of the film. And it's... Paul Mescal. I think that without wishing to just revisit last week's review, it is one of the best evocations of memory. I had a really interesting conversation with Kazuo Ishiguro, the very celebrated novelist and screenwriter. Let's just on... just, just relish those words. Can you just <laughs> try them past us again? You you what? Sorry, I, I, I missed a, that. Say I that had again. a really interesting yes, conversation, conversation with Kazuo Ishiguro, Kazuo Ishiguro. Okay. <laughs> about cinema's ability or inability to... Uh, to capture memory. Had he just popped round? <laughs> he, was in the, he was in the New Forest and he thought, I know, where can I go? Anyway, I said, we have different views on the subject, but I said, I think After Sun is one of the most perfect evocations of memory that I can remember. And I, I loved the And I think you were a fan of it too. Uh, there's an email from Joseph in Brighton. Um, Dear David and Freddie, long time listener, first time email. I've just walked home from the Duke of York in Brighton, having listened to Under Pressure on Loop and having watched After Sun on my own on a cold Sunday night. I'm writing this in the week I turn from 131 to 132. I'm not quite sure about why he said that. Anyway, as dad to a three-year-old daughter, I entered the cinema half knowing the emotional masochism I was about to inflict. But what pulled the Turkish rug out from underneath me uh, is a reference to a particular scene in the film where Paul Mescal buys a Turkish rug, was the subject of my meltdown as the film swelled to its crescendo. I think this is important stuff for you to know before you go and see Aftersun. I am prone to spending my days gazing at my daughter taking photos of her and filling any gap in in conversation, recounting her latest turns of phrase or acts of bravery. She dominates, as every toddler should. And so I expected my anguish to centre around Sophie, who's the, the daughter in the movie, and whether she was going to be OK, whether she was getting all she needed from those that love her. But as I watched After Sun click and clack along, I realised that my gut was wrenching for her dad, Paul Mescal's character, his angst, his imperfection, his love and need for love. When the camera lingered too long on shots of the water, when gliders swung and dangled on the breeze, or when Callum let conversations drift and die as he realised he didn't have the answer, uh, or at least not the right answer, my fear grew for him and not Sophie. As a young parent who is mostly okay, but sometimes not okay, when Callum flailed in the strobe and clutched onto Sophie like a raft in a storm, I saw myself reflected, me being centred and brought home by my daughter. In the matter of just a few moments, revealing my flaws, feeling their impact, seeing the guilt in my eyes and forgiving me. One day I'll play this film to her. I haven't seen anything else that explains how I feel so accurately. So tinkety-tonk, old fruit, down with heads of sporting federations, hijacking other people's legitimate grievances. So first of all, Joseph, what an immaculately written uh, email that is, and a very fine payoff, which very takes good. us back into the realms of FIFA. But as but he's he's entirely right, you know. And he we, is, we did mention he's entirely right. And Paul Mascow was on the. If you know nothing about the, you do go into it worried 
and concern because you don't know what kind of film it's going to be. Yeah. But you can understand Joseph's point of view. He's with his young daughter actually ending up feeling sorry for the position that he was in and the father yeah, was in. Yeah, I agree. Um, on the subject of that piece of music, um, you said you've been listening to Under Pressure. The thing you should seek out, which is credited to Oliver Coates and Queen with David Bowie. Oliver Coates is the composer for the film, and it's called Last Dance. And that is the version of Under Pressure with just the vocals, but given the uh, accompanied by Oliver Coates, in which the cello takes the the Freddie Mercury line about halfway through, and if that scene profoundly affected you, don't just go back and listen to Under Pressure. Listen to Last Dance by Oliver Coates and Queen with David Bowie, which is the version that they use in the film, and it's absolutely remarkable. Number six in the UK, number ten in America, The Banshees of Inner Sharon. I mean, Quentin Tarantino idiot that he is, said, cinema's the worst it's ever been. He didn't say it in that voice, obviously. Did he not? It's the worst ever been. I mean, you got to be like... No, it isn't, Quentin. We have a chart at the moment that includes Banshees of Inisherin and After Sun. Grow up. Also, at number five, living. Yeah. (laughs) And again, Quentin, stick that in your pipe. Because it's because that's fantastic as well. Uh, Black Adams at number four. That's rubbish. Uh, number three here, seven in America. La La Crocodile. Yeah, that's rubbish there. as well. But okay. you know, but you know, Quentin, you got a point. Um, uh, the menu is at uh, number two, which here, we've kind of discussed. And already, number two in America, Dear Amuse Bouche and Entree yeah. says Charlotte. Whilst Anya Taylor Joy does light up this mildly amusing yet uncomfortable film, it was ultimately lacking in the same love that needs to be infused into the creation of anything truly special that Taylor Joy's character points out in the film is missing from the titular menu. Mm-hmm. I was not unentertained. Say again. Yeah, there yeah, we go. There we go. We have discussed this before. <laughs> I was not unentertained, which is not the same as <laughs> being entertained. But in the end, I left with a sense of irony that. This was a film trying to portray pretentious people as annoying whilst being annoyingly pretentious itself and employing as its star an actor who is undoubtedly incredibly talented and wonderful, but who does insist that his name is pronounced Rafe (laughs) when everyone can see that it's Ralph. Pretentious, moi, more of that later. Ultimately, says Charlotte, none of the characters were rounded out sufficiently for me to feel too strongly either way about whether they died or not. And whilst I'm not sure if that's intentional, to me it feels as though the whole film should have evoked stronger emotions in me than it did. As Taylor Joy's character Margot says in the film, even the hot dishes were served cold, including the flambéed desert course or even dessert course. (laughs) Hello to uh, Jason, down with all Nazis, pretentious or otherwise, and thank you for the ongoing wittering, just as engaging in the new format as ever. Uh, LTL, an intermittent emergency emailer. Thank you, Charlotte. It Um, it is interesting that when I was watching the film and they got to the scene in which Anya Taylor-Joy explains exactly that, I did think... You know, that is the definition of a hostage to fortune. Because if you're feeling a little, it is it is literally like the film stops and somebody does does a critique that you go, hmm, oddly enough. Um, the only thing I would say is, bear in mind the menu is a comedy. I mean, it's not, you know, it, 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 is, it is a dark comedy, but it is technically a comedy. And I remember seeing um, a thing in which uh, John Stewart was on uh, Crossfire 
in which uh, he had said that Crossfire was the worst program in the world and that it was actually destroying civilization. And who's that idiot? Tucker Carlson, when he was on Crossfire, was saying, well, you know, you, you had interviewed somebody and you gave them a softball political question. And Jon Stewart went, I'm on Comedy Central. You know, this is your job. Um, okay, so the UK... John Stewart is great. Yeah, and Tucker Carlson is a moron. Uh, the UK number one and the US number one, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. My plan, uh, I mentioned last week that I'd only seen half the film because the yeah. projector broke, broke in Copenhagen, and I'd only seen the first half, and I didn't understand any of the bits that were in Swahili. Uh, I <laughs> That's right. French, of course, yes, no I didn't get the mind because it's all in Danish yeah. subtitles. Um, so my so my my views are inherently wrong. But Child One is returning to the UK this weekend briefly because there's a friend's do that he's come back for. We're trying to work out whether we can arrange to see the second half um, of the film in English, and then so we can. Will, will actually, you see the Will you see the first half? I guess you're we'll not going to go in halfway through because no, that would be rude, yeah, exactly. uh, and annoying. But I might read a book or something. But anyway, yes, I quite like to see it so I can catch up. So at least I can have a coherent opinion. I'm right. pleased it's done this well because, um, you know, I I do like I, I have reservations about it largely. I think that the the Avatar creatures. And the underwater stuff, um, I'm not particularly bothered about. But I do think it is. it does have an elegiac feeling to it. And I thought, you know, there were elements in it that really moved me. Elegi- is it elegiac or elegiac? Have I, have I said that wrong all these years? I, I, I think it is an either, either, neither, nor, nor the Oh, it doesn't really I, matter. I believe that's okay, the case. Right. But then I pronounce so many words wrong. As you said, what's the thing I do erudite, which apparently is you wrong? You put in an extra syllable. Also, I right. say auteur. I mean, it's auteur, isn't it? Because it's all, you know, it's... A, it, I don't think that matters. It doesn't ever come up, really. No, no. Uh, anyway, so uh, let's uh, come on to our very fine guest uh, on this week's programme, who is none other than your favourite. <laughs> uh, everyone's favourite. Everyone's favourite, Dame Emma Thompson, um, who is the one of the stars of Matilda the Musical, and you can hear my conversation with her after this clip. It's not sure. It is my belief that M- Matilda Wormwood is a genius. What? No. No. Haven't I just told you she is a gangster? She can do maths in her head that I couldn't do with a calculator. And the books she's read. It is my opinion that she should be placed in the top form with the 11-year-olds immediately. But what about the rules, honey? I believe that Matilda Wormwood is an exception to the rules. An exception? The rules. In my school. And that's a clip from Matilda, the musical. I'm delighted to say that Emma Thompson is with us, one of the stars of the film, one of the scary stars of the film. Hello, Emma, how are you? I'm fine, Simon. It's lovely to see you. It's very, very nice to see you. It's always fatal to assume that listeners know exactly what the story is, but I am going to make a few assumptions that people are familiar with the story of Matilda. But introduce us to Trunchbull, your Trunchbull, which is an extraordinary creation. Well, our director, Matthew Orchard, says she's got to be absolutely real. So, okay, but she's also a monster, so how am I going to make this monster real? Mm-hmm. So I thought, who can I, who can I find that I could base her on, even? I'd just done some work on, oh, this can sound so weird, but Edith Sitwell. And the, her childhood, when she was very 
unusually tall, like Trunchbull, and she had a bent nose and her parents used to tie her into these iron contraptions to try to straighten her spine and her nose. She was made to sleep in these things. And I thought that's a form of torture Mm -hmm. and it could turn you into a monster. It didn't with Edith because she had nice brothers and she managed and she turned into a poet and then ended up interviewing Marilyn Monroe in Hollywood. But... If it had all gone the other way, she might have been like Trunchbull. So I said to Matthew, how about this? That Trunchbull isn't cruel to children because she doesn't like children. She's cruel because she can't bear her own vulnerability. And so it's a kind of um, an attempt to just stamp it down and stamp it out because she was so helpless when she was little. So we went quite deep into the personality and it helped me an awful lot actually in the end to, because she's a murderer, Trunchbull. She's actually a murderer. (laughs) It's hilarious really how dark, dull, dared to go in his writing. Was it important for you to go that deep into the character? Because I think most people in their memory of Trunchbull would think of her just as a monster. And I don't really care how she got to be like that. All Mm. we know is that we hate her and we hope she gets her comeuppance and then we can uh, cheer at the end. But that obviously wasn't enough for you. No, I don't don't think that would have been terribly interesting. And what I liked was at the end when she's really lost her marbles, there's a kind of desperate vulnerability to her at the end. And you think, oh dear, oh dear, 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 that's not good, that's awful. And that is so much more interesting than just hating someone because they're one-dimensionally unpleasant. And it's like Mephistopheles, isn't it? The fallen angel. You think, well, there's got to be some pain in there somewhere, hasn't there? However dreadful he is. Describe physically uh, becoming Trunchbull. What, what, introduce to, to, to what you look like. What do we see on camera? Okay, so the whole process would start at about five o'clock in the morning when I would sit down and these extraordinary artists, um, Chloe and Emma, would attach pieces of prosthetic to my face. I had, So I had, if you can imagine this, listeners, a big old jaw, but made out of three pieces, two big cheek pieces and one chin piece, all sort of together. So it was like putting on a sort of a, a half a mask. And then I had a nose and I had earlobes. And then having glued it on, then it had to be painted. So Naomi, who was also part of the team, it was six people basically created Trunchbull. I was just happened to be one of them. I was just inside. And they, they painted it like artists, you know, with these very fine paintbrushes. So she looks completely real, even when you're close up to her. Tiny um, little veins on your yes, face. Yes, the I broken mean, veins yes. from too much whatever. And punching little hairs into the... In, it was a very painstaking process. And following that... I had this massive bodysuit because, of course, she's a hammer thrower. So she has this huge muscular frame. And underneath that, I used to wear a little T-shirt which has got little runnels, plastic, 
tubes and you can push iced water through it to keep the body cool. Because once you've got the, the bodysuit on and then a very heavy canvas costume with a belt with all the whistles and hammers and unpleasant instruments of torture that Trunchbull carries around with her, you get very, very hot. If you get too hot, the prosthetics start to slide off your face. And, it's, and then you're looking at tens of thousands of pounds while you wait and waste the crew's time putting your prosthetics back on. So it's it, it's a huge endeavour. And my job, I suppose, as an actor, was once it's all on, I've got to make it real. It's like animating something from the inside. Well, you have to climb and you have to sing. Yeah. I mean, you have to be... Really physical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we did all the singing live, which was very exciting, but also terrifying. And some days were very hot really hot. Uh, th th then I did all my stunts, which actually I just loved, but climbing up this 80-foot frame, climbing frame, and then standing on there and singing live. The first time I did it, my knees were shaking all the way through because I was so scared because this platform I was standing on was only about a foot wide. And then I got attached to this mechanical arm, which then lifts you up and puts you at a um, horizontal angle and then flings you about the place for when I get chucked out of the window. Well, you certainly seem to be playing the role with relish. Yes. Channeling your inner dominant rub, although he denies the charges. But <laughs> I would imagine that you were, when you're in full costume, as you've just described, and you, most of the sets are, are full of children, I imagine, mm. you must have been pretty scary, even if you were just sitting there being Emma. Underneath it all, they would have been... Did you have to be reassuring to them? Did you crack jokes? <laughs> Someone or... else has asked me that, but no, because of course I, they came on set, they didn't see Trunchbull. They just rushed, rushed at me and hugged me and said, is that a movie, is that a movie? And Matthew Walters said, could you please stop hugging the children? They're supposed <laughs> to be frightened of you. But I loved them so much. I was so admiring of them. They'd all been working and dancing and rehearsing for 18 months. There were 210 children oh. and they were they worked like Trojans. They were totally heroic, I have to say. I asked the scary question because it's a PG certificate yes. and Roald Dahl does dark as everybody uh, knows. Yes. And at the screening that I was at, which was a wash with children, yes. listening to other conversations as I went out, they were all saying that they'd enjoyed it, but they were scared. That ah. it is a scary film, which is a triumph, isn't it? I well, mean, they'd enjoyed it, but were, were they, when, when they say scared, did they mean traumatised and needing therapy later, or, no, or scared in a kind of delicious way? Deliciously scared. I imagine, I can't, I can't speak for them, but that was, that was my reading of it. But that's ideal, isn't it? I mean, that's what I like. I like, even now, if I'm going to be scared, I'm not very good at watching scary films, but I do like there to be an element of deliciousness. Had you seen the musical? Yes, oh, absolutely. And I'd seen the brilliant Bertie Carvel playing Trunchbull and written him a fan letter. So I was very scared to have to, have to follow in his genius footsteps. Um, I tried very hard not to do the voice that he'd done as well. And very, so different, very, very different, obviously, to the Danny DeVito version which was done. Is that even helpful to watch that? No, 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 no. That's a completely different read of it and much more sort of gentle, actually, in a way. Very much of its time, I think. Wonderfully so. We have to talk about Alicia Weir, who plays Matilda. Uh, I interviewed Tim Minchin yeah. uh, recently, and he said, I mean, obviously, he's, it, these are his songs, extraordinary songs, but he says she puts in the best 
child performance he has ever seen in any film yeah. ever. Yeah. What is your take on what she did? Oh, I, th- I, I agree um, completely. Uh, she's remarkable without any form of precocity, just calmly, professionally, and doing what she does with great joy. Really incredible. And what she does is, is, is startling, actually. It's I think she's so 13, convincing. but she has to yeah. be a small child who's very brave and very grown up, really. In a, and in a way, it's sort of, it feels like a grown up children's film. Yeah, I would think that's, that's right. You couldn't take very little ones, I think. Might be a bit tricky, but you could, I mean, it depends, you know. Nanny McPhee's scary too. I think four. <laughs> Is Nanny McPhee the musical still yeah. about to happen? Well, it's not about to happen, but we're doing the next workshops in February. We're working on it. And I hadn't heard you sing. I know you were in the, a musical when you were um, in your 20s, I think, in mm. the West End, but I hadn't heard you sing. I just wondered whether any of your experiences with Matilda will feed into Nanny McPhee the musical. Absolutely. I mean, just how devilishly difficult it is to write a musical. Tim, score, Chris Nightingale's musical direction. You know, that that's all such a, a lesson for us, for me, for my composer, Gary Clark, and our director, Katie Rubb. We're just, it's just working out how to work up a score into a story. I mean, Matilda's such a wonderful example. I mean, it's sort of exemplary. This is a quote from you, Emma. Oh, Um, God. And I just was interested to hear your thoughts behind it. You said, I think it was, you were quoted in The Guardian, that producing work for children is the most sacred work we have. This is at the time, I think, when it was, uh, when Matilda was being shown at the London Film Festival. I Mm. I thought that was just a very interesting idea. What What were you getting at? Well, I'm getting at the fact that as an audience, they're so receptive and so open that it's terribly important that what we do for them is the best that we can do. They're in a sense our most important audience because if you remember the things that affected you and developed you, uh, art that you saw when you were young, it's crucial. Things that I was brought up with were crucial to me, um, starting with Beatrix Potter. So, yes, I do think of it as sacred. I was just going to ask you just briefly about Uh, um, Stephen Graham and Andrew Riseborough, who play um, Matilda's parents. Yeah. And and they're fantastic, and we know exactly the kind of people that we are, because we've read the books uh, uh, and so on. But I wondered whether... Two things, if we've got time. One is, do you think Roald Dahl was a snob? Because they are sort of working-class parents who don't really get literature and so on. And uh, and I just wondered whether you thought there was... I mean, other people have accused him of, of that. Do you know, I, I mean, he very possibly was, but I don't know. I've never read a biography of his. I obviously was aware of all the anti-Semitic um, controversy. So I don't know whether he was a snob. I actually don't know. <laughs> Lots of writers have represented people with no access to literature in that way. I don't think he's the only one. Um, but I've no idea, Simon. I'm not even trying to sidestep it. I, I just don't know enough about him as a person. Maybe an easier question then. With your Professor Trelawney hat on, mm. I wonder if they're the 
maybe they were the starting point for the Dursleys. Just it reminded me a little bit of the Harry Potter setup. Yes. Yes, again. You don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't you'd have to ask Day Kay Rowling about that. I've 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 no idea. What do we see you in next? Well, Jemima Khan's delightful romantic comedy, What's Love Got to Do With It, which opens in January, and that's she just wrote a beautiful, very loving, very uplifting script. And God knows we need beautiful, loving and uplifting at the moment more than we need anything else. We do. Uh, Emma Thompson, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. I was sort of seeking enlightenment at the end on the... Um, because I'd, it just struck me that they're a little bit Dursley-esque, uh, that family. Yeah. And the thought that maybe... In amongst the anti-Semitism, Roald Dahl was a snob uh, as well. Uh, um, so Mark's thoughts on Matilda uh, in just a moment. The matters arising, just because mm. these things annoy me. The whirring that you heard after about two minutes was someone's laptop uh, in the room. And we just... just Not just, mine, because no, I no, wasn't you in the room. No, you weren't there. It was someone's laptop, part of the crew. And so it's all set up for film crews. So the, yeah. the sound, the slightly unusual sound is because the microphone that I'm using is like three feet above my head, uh, which is why it sounds distressingly unmiked, <laughs> I think. But that's TV sound for you. Yeah. They're not quite so concerned as, no. as radio folk. Anyway, uh, Matilda, the musical, it's the Tim Minchin musical, uh, as we mentioned, I loved it. What did you think? Well, I didn't see the musical stage no, show, didn't. which um, I, I have to say, having seen the film, I now want to go and see the stage show. So just because, you know, you said at the beginning, obviously it, we assume that everyone knows the story, but crucially the story is very, very talented young girl in a family with two parents who don't want her. At the very beginning, we see the mother going, I'm not pregnant. Oh, I'm having a baby. Why do all the terrible things happen to us? The father then wants a son and then, in fact, refers to Matilda for the rest of the thing as boy because can't quite get his head on about the fact that he's got a daughter. She then escapes, in inverted commas, to a school, which on the one hand is a great liberation, but on the other hand is ruled over by Trunchbull, played by uh, Emma Thompson, but also has this teacher, Miss Honey, played by Lashana Lynch, who we were talking about in No Time to Die, the Bond film, who was in the Debbie Tucker Green film, Ear for Eye, Eye for Ear. Um, you know, and he was a, 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 a really, really brilliant actor who you can watch um, the whole of Matilda and not realise that, yes, that's that same person you saw being really, really imposing. Is now Miss Honey. Exactly, uh, in the James Bond film. So... Firstly, I mean, the obvious stuff, the songs are very, very good. You, you and I were talking last night when I came stayed in your house because of Lady in the Van. Yeah. Um, the, the alphabet song, which is really clever when you don't realise that it's doing the alphabet thing until you see it the second time around. It's very early on when she's gone to school for the first time. Yeah, yeah and you realise that somehow they're working the alphabet. It's, it's just smart. It's Genius, just in like yeah. in a really, really kind of clever wordplay way. The Revolting Children and Revolting Song is an absolute banger, isn't it? So the songs are great. The story itself is one which has been told <clears throat> several times. I, I do have a great fondness for the Danny DeVito version. Obviously, the Danny DeVito version transposes it to America. And actually, when you were referring to the thing about is, is Dahl a snob, it is interesting in the DeVito version because America is America's class structure is so different to our class structure that it doesn't appear to be snobbish, that thing about when he says, you know, why do you want books when you've got a perfectly good television? 
that actually it was funny that I, only having listened to your interview, thought, oh, yeah, that is an interesting point, that, that when, you, when, it's, when it's on home ground, you can perhaps interpret it that way. I think the young star, as you said, is absolutely brilliant. So, Alicia Wish, so she's 14, is that right? She's 13 at the moment. Okay. I mean, just, a, you know, an absolute barrel load of energy. Incredible, yeah. And... There was a funny thing when, you know, <laughs> Emma Thompson said, yeah, the kids work like Trojans. Thought, well, that's a, <laughs> it's against the law. They're only allowed to work four hours Within a day. Within the confines Within of the law. Within the confines law. of the they child work. labor laws, they work like Trojans. And also, this is uh, Matthew, is it Warkus or Warkus? How do you pronounce is it? I haven't pronounced, I haven't actually said the word okay. out loud. I think she said Warkus. Warkus, beg your pardon. Okay, I so who, of course, said. is the brilliant director of Pride. I mean, a theatre director, and of course, you know, done this in the theatre, but directed Pride, which I remember reviewing so well when it came out because I just love that film. And I've gone back and seen it several times since then. It is it is absolutely joyous and uplifting. I think I was in the Isle of Man when we reviewed that film. I think I did an outside broadcast from the Isle of Man, which is one of the reasons why I have, you know, particularly happy memories of it. Um, I think that there, it, it, it goes out of its way to be cinematic. It goes out of its way not to be a, a stage show on screen. And I think generally it manages to get that. There are a couple of moments when it felt a little bit like it's good. It's not brilliant, but it's good. But I want to see the stage show, which kind of made me think, okay, sometimes the, the, the effort towards being cinematic almost became almost sort of drew attention to the fact that it's that it's being cinematic. But, you know, you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted not to be just won over by the story. Because, I mean, things, you know, scenes that we all know, they are... What's the best way of saying this? I got the feeling that everybody in the frame, and actually everybody behind the camera as well, was giving it 110%. And occasionally it it didn't entirely work for me, but it never didn't work because I thought anybody was just doing a job of work. I mean, it felt like it was, you know, like it was being made by people that really wanted it to be the best it could be. And the fact they were singing live. Yes, um, that, which pays I, great dividends. Sometimes, great you, dividends. sometimes you can't tell, but the way she was describing it, like being up a frame 80 feet know, in the air, which is incredibly high, and singing live. That's going to terrify anybody. I have to say also, Emma Thompson in headmistress roles is a fantastic thing. I was referring you the other day to um, that marvellous thing in um, An Education, you know, with Kerry Mulligan, in which she's the headmistress figure and Kerry Mulligan says, you know, something like, you know, I'm a woman. And Emma Thompson says, you're not a woman. And she just says this in such a withering, meaning you're still a child, you know, in such a withering way. So it's it, it, clearly she's relishing the heck out of playing this role. Absolutely. Um, also, in that interview, in the first three minutes, she did Edith Sitwell, Mephistopheles. It was like, oh, sorry, if only, if only everyone could... It was a very erudite... It was very erudite. Conversation. Yeah. And iron, ironclad logic. Uh, it's the ads in a minute, Mark. But first, it's time once again to step into our laughter lift. Oh, really? Yes. Hey, 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 Mark. I'm sure you're not watching the World Cup, but anyway, I'm not, no. I'm a big For fan. So many reasons. I'm a it's big... so easy to boycott something when you don't care about it. Yeah, well, you don't like it anyway. <laughs> 
I'm giving up cabbage for Lent. Okay. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, but I am, I have to say, I'm a big fan of the Middle East. Last time I was out there uh, was for a musical talent competition. I was singing in Bahrain. <laughs> so I like that. Very good. Okay. And do you know I'm a bit of a mixologist? No. Unfortunately, the good lady ceramicist at Heron Doors gets really cross when I mess with her beloved red wine. So I added two muddled oranges, 500 grams of chopped strawberries, peaches, apples and pears, a double shot of brandy and one of Cointreau and 500 millilitres of lemonade. Now she's sangrier than ever. Now she's sangrier, sangrier than, ever. than ever. I mean, it doesn't really work if I have to <laughs> look at you to see. Anyway, and she gets ever so annoyed, she's ever so annoyed by my puns as well, Mark, and I can't imagine why. In fact, my whole writing career was sparked by one of her remarks. She said one day, why didn't you write a book instead of your stupid wordplay jokes? And I said, that's a novel idea. TikTok, a Times Thriller of the Year 2022, now available for just six pounds. Six pounds. Six pounds. Six pounds. Six pounds for all those words. A little uh, stocking suggestion. Anyway, uh, what's still to come? Um, page 15. I know, I know, page 14, page 15. What's to come? Ah, here I'll we be are. reviewing. I've got it. Oh, it just says Mark responds. No, it says Mark says, I'll be reviewing, and then well, you You read us, it out, it's not on my page okay, 15. what are you going to be reviewing in the, in the time that's left? Uh, oh, I'm going to be reviewing... Um, oh, she said, I'm going to be reviewing Nanny, and I think that's probably it, unless there's something else. Have you kind of lost it all together? Bones and all is point? in take two, yes. It is, anyway. <laughs> So back, back in a moment, once Mark has got his stuff together... I can't read scripts! Unless... It's not news! You're a vanguardista, in which case your service will not be interrupted much. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with Rooftop Experiences located at Bossy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challenges and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And next Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help, I Sexted My Boss live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexedmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexedmyboss.com slash cinema. A couple of emails before we go any further. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, an email from Saham Hosseini, who had used our NordVPN discount, because it's one of the things that we've been uh, advertising. Touting. For some uh, protesters in Iran, who, according to Saham, needed them desperately. This was yeah. certainly an angle that we hadn't actually thought about. Anyway, NordVPN have been in touch and they've sent us this. Quote, everyone should be able to access the internet in private. This is what, what's interesting about this is 
it's a, it, it's a commercial, it's an ad, but actually ties in directly to the, one of the big international stories of the moment. Everyone should be able to access the internet in private without the fear of being watched or controlled. And yet too many people around the world live under heavy censorship and surveillance or are silenced for expressing their opinions. NordVPN stands for digital freedom and helps people securing their private data and providing open access to the internet. If you are facing extensive online censorship, targeted surveillance, or the threat of violence, contact NordVPN and request a free emergency VPN service immediately wow. to protect your privacy. With NordVPN, you can securely bypass online restrictions and keep your communications away from prying eyes. Or you can simply go to this link, nordvpn.org slash emergency hyphen VPN and then another forward slash. So it's a bit cumbersome, but anyway, nordvpn.org slash emergency hyphen VPN and then another slash. So I think that's really interesting. Well. Uh, and thank you very much to them for getting in touch. Um, now, this is a complex, complex issue uh, from Donal in Amsterdam. That does sound like a song. It does, doesn't it? Will it yeah. spring again? I'll bring again Donal in Amsterdam. Oh, I was thinking of the windmill in Amsterdam, where the mouse... Oh, where, where the, the mouse, mouse clip, clippity-clop on the stairs. Exactly. <laughs> there Sadly, was a mouse. It's nothing where, to do. There you know. on the stair. Dear... Where on the stair. Uh, Quite, oh, sorry, I will the, stop. Yeah, thank you. The pronunciation, obviously, is... Uh, and foreign language is at the heart of this email, and I will do my best. Dear Gaeliger and Gaelic... Recently, Simon asked for linguists to give any connections between Irish and other languages. Yes. While not a cunning linguist myself, I will lean on the wonderful, and I hope this is uh, Mankin Mangan, and his delightful work, 32 Words for Field. <laughs> One... <laughs> Working already. One central idea to the book is that the Indo-European migrants to Ireland about four and a half thousand years ago came with their language, a language that people who spread south and east also spoke. Ireland remained relatively unperturbed in comparison to the rest of Europe. So the ancient roots of the Irish language and similarities to the language of those other migrants remained intact. Similarities include, and apologies, as much as this might rely on Simon's ability to pronounce Irish, yes. Arabic and words from other exotic tongues, which I think you know is limited Denizens of the Arabian Peninsula, referring to the three-leafed symbol for a trio of goddesses as a shamrak, the three-leaf sprig native to Ireland with similar religious symbolism is, of course, uh, the shamrog. In Yemen, the word for a knife is sakina. In Irish, it is shkian. Or my favourite of all time, in Irish, a cow is a bow, B-O. Anyone who has eaten a Vietnamese beef noodle soup will have had phobo, bow in Vietnamese, also meaning cow. The author of the book, not the email, admits some of the connections may be fanciful. However, as a Gaeliguar, we often think of our language as some polarity to English. We think in English and translate incorrectly to Irish. Understanding it in a greater context allows me, certainly, to consider my native tongue more deeply. And he signs off. Uh, Michel Lemas Donal in Amsterdam, I imagine his best wishes. P.S. In Ireland, we call our language Irish in English or Gaelic in Irish, but never Gaelic. Scots Gaelic exists and Gaelic is used to refer to cultural things, for example, the Gaelic Athletic Association. So thank you for clearing that. That is fantastic. And can I just say the amount of research that went into yes. how you read that email out 
Well, <laughs> I, you know, hopefully it's reasonably, you know, it's within the proximity of what Donal in Amsterdam, he saw a mouse where they are there, will consider acceptable. And apologies to all our uh, Irish, uh, Gaelic, Scots Gaelic um, um, speakers for all the mistakes that I made. Correspondence at CoverDemo.com. What else are we reviewing there? Uh, so, a uh, new film uh, out this week, uh, which is uh, Bones and All. Um, do you know anything about this? Have you uh, have, uh, you, have no, you followed any of this at all? No, okay, tell me more. So this is a new film by Luca Guadagnino, um, who of course made "Call Me by Your Name" and "Suspiria," which I think you interviewed. Did you interview Tilda Swinton for for Suspiria remake? You interviewed uh, Dakota, Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson. I beg your pardon. So this is adapted from a twenty fifteen. I really didn't like that. Well, you didn't like, like Suspiria. Not really, no. no. but you, have you seen the original Suspiria, which is half half the length and twice as good? Um, so this is from a cannibalistic coming-of-age novel by Camille D'Angelis. Taylor Russell is Marin, who is a young woman who lives with her dad. Her dad keeps her bedroom door locked. She's invited for a sleepover with school friends. She says, I can't go because my, my father won't let me. I said, well, sneak out the window. She goes. She sneaks out of the window. And when she's there something terrible happens. Turns out it's happened before. The father says, grab your things, we're leaving town, we've got 20 minutes. They've clearly done this before. They relocate, they start again. And then he abandons her, leaving her with some money, her birth certificate, and a cassette tape in which he narrates the story of her life for her because he says, I don't know how much of this you remember, but this is how you got here. How as a child, he realized that she was dangerous. And he thought that maybe he could contain it, how they were abandoned by their mother, by her mother. Now she's alone in the world with this, you know, knowledge that she is a dangerous person. And she rapidly finds out that she's actually not alone in the world, that there are others like her, others who can smell her presence, uh -huh. such as Mark Rylance, who plays a character called Sully, and Timothée Chalamet as Lee, who turns out to be her soulmate. Here's a clip. What was it like? A rush. You could feel every blood vessel like spider webbing through me. Felt like some kind of weird new superhero. What about afterward? What'd you feel about it? What'd you think? I don't remember after. So what then happens is that they have, you know, a it's not really it's it's a a, a sort of soulmate friendship, but they are kind of you know, a couple on the run, on the move, because they both share this d very dangerous side to their personality that turns out that actually is shared by a huge number of people. And the rest of the cast also includes Michael Stuhlbarg, Chloe Savini, David Gordon Green, director of the new Halloween movies and director of the forthcoming Exorcist movie, Jessica Harper, um, obviously which connects back to the horror that we were talking about before. The film is beautifully shot by Arsene Kachachuran. Um, it has original music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It uses needle drops from bands like Joy Division and Duran Duran because it's got a, you know, a, it's, it's set in the past. There's, a, there's a, the weirdest use of Kisses Lick It Up that I've ever seen. In a, it's definitely not a song that I thought was going to be appearing uh, in the film. It got a 10-minute standing ovation at Venice, but then again, doesn't everything. I think away from the festival circuit, um, it's good, but it's not great. And I think this about a lot of Guadagnino's, Guadagnino's films. I mean, on one level, it's Twilight with Cannibals. 
you know, people have been so snotty and so snobby about uh, Twilight and critics have very much fallen in love with Bones and All. On one level, this is Twilight with Cannibals. On another level, it's Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, which is a film I'm very proud to say when Linda and I programmed the horror season at uh, the NFT in 2004, we put that on because it's kind of, you know, that is a film in which it has a similar thing about personal obsession and cannibalism and eating, which is, you know, I think the tone was similar. What it isn't is Raw, the Julia DeCorno film, because it's nothing like as good as Raw. It does have a, a great atmosphere. I mean, you can smell the locations and, um, you know, it has, a, it has a real texture to it. I think, as with so much of, you know, when you said you didn't like Suspiria, one of the things you didn't like about it was that it felt very long. Well, Bones and All feels very long. And I think Guadagnino, that's something that he does, is he's not great at brevity. And I don't mean that just as a kind of crass, his films need to be shorter. What I mean is his films sometimes have an undisciplined and also, I think, almost self-consciously pleased with them feeling. So I liked a lot of Bones and All. I thought the performances were pretty solid. Um, Mark Rylance as Sully, it's interesting, because I know you're a Mark Rylance fan, it's a really, really creepy performance that he does, and it's, you know, it's. I think that's a, a very fine performance. And I think that, that it has a, a a texture and a stench to it that is powerful. But does I the also stench think- come from FIFA? <laughs> yeah, because the Netflix documentary is showing on the same television. If something you know, smells, I'm assuming. Sm- that. Something smells rancid and 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 dead and rotting. It must be FIFA. Um, but it's strong on atmosphere, strong on performances. I don't think it's I don't think it's the masterpiece that people perhaps think it is. And I would say if you really like this, check out Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day and absolutely check out Julia DeCorno's Raw, which as a coming of age movie does more in less time. Let's do our what's on then. This is where you email us a voice note about your festival or a special screening that you have wherever in the world you happen to be. You send it to correspondence at kermanameo.com. Here we go with this week's correspondence. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is Lily, a co-director of the London Migration Film Festival. The aim of our festival is to challenge how people think and talk about the hot topic of migration, and the next edition is taking place at venues across London from the 24th to the 30th of November. We hope you can make it. Hey Simon and Mark, this is Luke McManus, the director of a new documentary folk musical called North Circular, set in Dublin's north inner city, told in Academy Ratio black and white. Uh, It features performances from the leading lights of the new Dublin folk scene and it's released in Irish cinemas on December 2nd and it's coming to the UK in the new year. Well, I'm intrigued by both of those. Fantastic. I love this feature. I I genuinely love this feature. Uh, Luke is the director of North Circular and uh, Lily, before that, co-director of the London Migration Film Festival. Uh, Send your 20-second audio trailer about your event anywhere in the world to correspondence at kermanamayo.com. A couple of weeks up front, if that's okay, and then we can play you out with the glory of your own words and your own (laughs) accent, as we got from Lily uh, and from Luke. Okay, what else have we got? She said, this is um, a film about the two New York Times journalists who blew the whistle on the Harvey Weinstein scandal, Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor, played by Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. It's adapted from the book by Tyrion Cantor of the same name. Uh, and it's uh, the writer of the film is Rebecca Lenkovich, and it's directed by Maria Schrader. 
as with so many movies in this genre, it takes a stylistic lead from all the president's men. I mean, it is two journalists doggedly tracking down leads, working the phones, following the well, following you know, in, following the trail as far as it needs to go, despite meeting opposition. The difference is these are two women with children at home and husbands who are left holding the baby. So that in itself is kind of you know, an interesting variant to the genre, which is so often about, you know, the male journalist doggedly doing this. We start with Trump getting elected in 2016, despite a number of credible sexual assaults against him. Um, the editors ask, where do we go from here? Because it seems that nobody cares. I mean, they just elected to president somebody who clearly has a number of very credible sexual assault allegations against him, and yet he still managed to get elected. So where do we take this story? Somebody says, Hollywood. Hollywood is worth investigating because we know for a fact that, you know, people have talked about terrible stories in Hollywood and immediately they get led to a mountain of suppressed evidence about Miramax as being a toxic work environment and specifically the environs of Harvey Weinstein. Everyone has a story, but no one will go on the record. Rose McGowan has already spoken out, but has been ignored and therefore is, you know, not particularly sympathetic towards a newspaper now coming to her and saying, we want to do this story. Other key cases, and I know this is recent history, so a lot of people will remember this anyway, include Ashley Judd, who plays herself in the film, recounting her own now well-documented experiences. Jennifer Ely is Lauren Madden, who is about to undergo surgery and so has her own personal life issues to deal with, but is a part of this story. And Samantha Morton, the Zelda Perkins, who is one of the earliest witnesses to Weinstein's predatory behavior, who has been hushed up by a gagging order. Here is a clip. These are the original letters. I had to have their permission if I wanted to contact a therapist or speak to an accountant. I was never to speak to any other media now or hereafter existing about it. Jody, this is bigger than Weinstein. This is about the system protecting abusers. I want you to take these. And I want you to use them. Now, I have to say, that is one of the most powerful scenes in the film, not least because Samantha Morton takes everything to a different level. I mean, I think Samantha Morton is just an extraordinary screen presence. And she... I mean, you can see just from that very brief clip, yes. you know, she's not messing around. So the film is a drama, but it also includes documentary elements. I mean, there is an audio tape that was first uncovered by Ronan Farrow of Weinstein harassing an assistant. Um, and of course, we now all know that the way this story finally progresses, that Weinstein ended up being convicted. In fact, even as this film is opening, there is another Weinstein trial going on. I mean, if... if if all things are equal, he will spend the rest of his life behind bars and deservedly so because he was a predator on an industrial level. But as that clip says, it's not just about him. It's about an entire system and hierarchy that enabled all this stuff to happen. It is a gripping story. It is solidly, if perhaps somewhat unremarkably told, and it has flopped. In the US, in its opening weekend, it took around 2 million from 
2,000 theatres, which has been, there's been news stories written about this as being one of the worst major studio openings ever. The Hollywood Reporter story was headlined, Why Hollywood's First Harvey Weinstein Movie Was Sidelined in Opening. Variety headline was, She Said Bombs, Why Aren't Awards Season Movies Resonating With Audiences? And as you know, I mentioned before that, you know, Tarantino recently said this thing about, you know, movies are worse than, than they've ever been. Weinstein's own PR team have gloatingly issued a statement, you know, about why the movie isn't doing well and and saying Harvey, the film producer, would have known that, I mean, you know, which is repugnant on a level it really pains me to say. I think the simple thing is this. The reason that she said had a bad time in cinema, in, in the American box office, is it's a release strategy issue. You don't open these movies in 2,000 theatres. If you look at Spotlight, it opened in five theatres and then it grew and it built. You look at, um, I mean, that's, you know, that's a movie that went on to win big at the awards. You look at The Post, it had a slow rollout. And The Post is a very similar thing in terms of its, again, taking all the president's men as its kind of... You don't open these movies in 2,000 theatres. Apparently, the reason it did is that in the post-pandemic era, there has been a big wobble about the idea of slow rollout strategies because key audiences for these movies have lost the cinema habit and so the you have a you're kind of in a in a bind in which you have to go for broke it's all or nothing and that's a it is completely inappropriate opening strategy i'm not pointing the finger at the studio and saying you know you drop the ball it's because of the way that the market is now it is much harder for a strategy that is designed for this kind of movie which is you start small you build you know you go five theaters 10 theaters you go key cities and then you build out so all the kind of I have to confess, either horrified or gloating accounts of how poorly the box office is done are, I believe, completely unfair to the film and have tell us something about the industry, but they don't tell us something about the film. This is a solidly made, you know, gripping and frankly horrifying story that deserved better, and I believe it'll probably get a better response here. I mean, it's had very good notices. And of course, it's an awards contender because we're now in awards corridor. It is just fantastically unfortunate that the industrial circumstances put it in a position that it should never have been in. That's a useful corrective. I should go out and see it deliberately. Well done. And that's it for Take One. Production management and general all-round stuff. Lily Hambly, cameras, Teddy Riley, videos on our YouTube channel, Ryan O'Meara, studio engineer, Josh Gibbs. Flynn Rodham is the assistant producer, guest researcher, Sophie Ivan. Hannah Talbot is the producer. Simon Poole is the redactor-in-chief. Mark, your film of the week. Well, clearly... Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Next week, our guest will be Gary Oldman talking about his role as Jackson Lamb in the new series of Slow Horses. Also, it's a big anniversary for Nil by Mouth. Wow. Thank you for listening. Our extra takes with a bonus review, bunch of recommendations, more stuff about the movies and cinema adjacent television available on Monday. Hurrah. Hurrah.